0: Hey there! Welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs, and how their cultures make customers want to work with them, and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Delphine Carter. Delphine is the founder and CEO of Bulo Solutions, a career matching service that helps women stay in and return to the workforce. Bulo has now helped over a thousand women and has generated over a million dollars in revenue. And Delphine was able to fund Bulo's half a million seed stage while working and raising children during the pandemic. On today's interview, we discuss the problems with measuring your team's performance based on time spent in your seat, and how to approach that measurement instead. We talk about why you should be intentional with your team building, but never prescriptive. And finally, we talk about how to use Slack as a place to build culture remotely and the ins and outs of setting up different channels and the purposes of them. This is a fascinating interview, and I hope you enjoy. Delphine, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you on the show.
1: Oh, it's a lot of fun to be here.
0: So I thought we could start with this concept that you mentioned last time we spoke, which was the caregiver. What exactly is a caregiver? And I'm curious to understand what it would look like for our CEO and leader audience if they were caregivers in their organization.
1: So a caregiver is anyone who is responsible for taking care of a loved one. And that loved one could be a child. It could be a parent. It could also be, you know, some of us have siblings that have special needs where we have to take care of them as adults. Could be a loved family member, an aunt or uncle. So it's really anybody who is responsible for taking care of another human. And that's the truest definition of a caretaker.
0: And so one of the applications of caregiving, if you like, is taking care of your employees as well and, and taking care of the team that you have so how do you think that leaders today can apply this idea of being a caregiver in their organizations
1: caregivers are the backbone of our economy one in six people have left work because they have caregiving responsibility so a business it has all of the you know the whiff although what's in it for me to accommodate some of the needs of the caregivers. And what's really important for a caregiver is a boss, we'll just use the term boss, CEO, exec, leadership, whatever, who acknowledges that there are responsibilities that a team member may have that could require time in an agile way so they may have to run out they may have to take care of doctor's visits if their child's sick or if a parent's sick they have to step out and do it so acknowledging that life happens outside of the office then there is also the financial aspect so if you're a caregiver you may have to pay somebody to be a nurse for your parents you may have to pay for after-school care or daycare for your children and so acknowledging when you're looking at your entire benefits package that there are some financial ways that you can help parents feel relief for their situation, their financial situation. There's, of course, parental leave. It's just an understanding that once you become a parent, you adopt a child, whatever it is, you may need some time to bond and need some time to recover from having a newborn. That goes to everybody, right? That's a dad and a mom. So we shouldn't get just get caught up that we're worried about parental leave for mothers. And then the biggest one for us is a flexible working arrangement. So maybe that's location, remote, in-office, hybrid, could be schedule. So maybe they can come in at 7 and leave a little bit early to miss the traffic. Maybe they could work till 3 and then finish the day at home once the kids come off the school bus. And it could just be something as simple as culture, where if I need to run out and do um, a caregiving exercise, whatever it may be, that I am confident that I will not be judged and that my chance of success in the company is not affected by that decision. So what we talk about is measuring people by their output and by their goal attainment versus button seat.
0: You raise a couple of interesting points. It seems like the key theme throughout all of this is providing more flexibility with our workforce. And so saying that people have different ways of operating, different priorities to someone who's a caregiver, to a non-caregiver, and being able to accommodate those is is very important. I want to pick up on what you said right at the end of how we measure the outputs of our employees. Because one of the things that you shared last time we spoke is that a signal of toxic culture is actually measuring an employee's success based on the time that they spend sat in their seats. What exactly is the problem with this? And and how should we be thinking about measurement in a different way to create a more healthy culture?
1: Measurement by somebody's location gives you nothing. Just because they showed up in the office doesn't mean that they're not playing solitaire, doesn't mean that they're not even just being really slow about how they go about things, I've walked by people's desks before and I see that they're watching a Netflix show really quickly. And maybe that's okay. Maybe they just needed a 30 minute mind break. But the point is, is you cannot measure a person by just sitting there watching them. And again, mostly by location, it's seeing how efficient are they in their time and how effective are they at reaching their goals that's hard. It's hard to put goals in place. That means you have to have measurable metrics. That means you have to have a lot of insight capability in your business. But when you strictly say, I am measuring whether my company is operating well between eight to five, I think you're losing out on a ton of great information. I think you're missing out on the people that are getting more done between eight and three than the guy that's staying there between eight and nine, but spends half his time at the water cooler. We talk about phrases in an office that have a lot of parental bias, unintentional bias. And so when people say, oh my gosh, Fred's so committed, he's here till 8 p.m. every night. I don't know that that language is actually healthy at all because somebody who has to be home at five doesn't mean they're any less committed. Who's actually producing more? Where are the results that show that Fred's more committed than Beth or Bill, who need to leave at five?
0: That's a great point. And it gets into this idea of unintentionally sabotaging the relationship you have with your caregivers from the language that you're using. If we were to zero in on this for a second, in terms of some of the language that leaders might be using, that they don't realize is maybe getting in the way of a productive relationship with their team. Are there any other words or phrases that come to mind that people might take for granted in how they communicate, but actually might be heard very differently depending on whether you're a caregiver or not?
1: I mean, it's no different than the conversations we're finally having around diversity, equity, and in- the inclusion aspect of it, that we say things, and there's, it's not that there's intent of harm, but it just my ears are going to hear it differently than yours. And so, for example, when you're assigning new projects to the team, saying, you know what? She probably doesn't want to travel. She's got like three kids or something. This may be too much. Don't make those assumptions about what somebody's life looks like. They may have the capability and the desire to do this. And ultimately it's on them to make that decision. So as you're creating team alignment, try not to get into another person's head on what works well for them and stick with what works well for the business. If that person has shown all of the capabilities to get the job done and do it well, let them make the decision of whether they're up for a promotion or up for a new project. Three reasons women leave the workforce. One of them is because of lack of career progression. And it's because once they become parents, a lot of assumptions get made unintentionally, intentionally that could squelch a career. The one I just mentioned is he's so committed. He's here till late. My favorite one, because it's just ubiquitous, is we hit our monthly goal. We're so excited. Let's have a company happy hour. In the gut of a parent, that's like a punch because what you're immediately thinking is, okay, who's going to take my kid to practice? I can't show up at daycare after having a drink. I don't want to miss up on those conversations that happen When we're all in a group and interacting there's a lot of bonding that happens and so you're immediately torn between i need to take care of my kid have them at practice pick them up from daycare sometimes it's also an additional charge if they stay later versus i want to be with my company i want to be bought in i want to be there to celebrate i want them to see that i'm celebrating and so thinking through it's okay to have a happy hour Maybe give a little bit of warning, but also celebrate in different ways. Maybe you have a donuts in the morning or granola if you want to be a little bit healthier, of course, but come up with different ways of celebrating. There's plenty of great examples if you Google it because so many companies are facing this. And it's also cheaper to all business owners. It's way cheaper than a happy hour.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Happy hour, I think, can get out of hand for, uh, for some companies. Let's take a a look at Bulo for a second, because obviously this is what you stand for. And I can imagine that you have some interesting takes on how you build culture and how you appreciate the caregivers in your organization. So when a caregiver does well as part of the Bulo team, what are some of the ways in which you will celebrate their contribution or celebrate as a team?
1: A lot of it is through Slack. So we are 100% remote the value of that is we've got people that are located across the country, so we've got a great diversity in mindset and in culture because they bring different experiences to the table. So for celebrating, we celebrate a lot over Slack. We have random channels, channels that that are there for zero intent, but it's almost like a mind-busting channel where you can just put in little jokes, quirks something that just happened, something fun you're doing this weekend. And then we have celebration where, you know, somebody does really well and each team member is responsible for, um, not responsible, but they feel beholden to celebrate somebody. We have a weekly leadership meeting and we kick off every leadership meeting with an employee shout out so that the leaders can hear exactly who's being successful and really contributing to the company's success. And then I'll also send just intentional emails saying hey i heard this great job it's thinking hey you heard something good i wonder if that person ever heard it and throwing it out there because the water cooler talk and the coffee talk we've got to replace that with this remote and flexible workplace and that's the best way to do it
0: it's really fascinating to me having heard this kind of shift across the board and the guests we've spoken to this year that the the way in which we communicate as a team has basically been completely digitized but that shouldn't cause a lack in the culture that we're building and i think it's really interesting the way in which you're using slack as a kind of substitute for the office so where there's the water cooler you would have the random channel for example where you might have team celebrations or physical happy hours or donut time whatever you have the celebration channel and so it it does seem like you've kind of digitized the various areas of your office into these slack channels and you're using them to very intentionally communicate the right message to the team.
1: As companies decide what they're going to do, if they decide to be 100% remote or hybrid, hybrids probably the scariest for a lot of employees because in the hybrid work style, the people that will be less likely to come into the office by all of the studies that have been made by Sherm and some of the top HR institutes, is that people of color and caregivers are going to be the ones that will be the least likely to come into the office in the hybrid situation, unless there's mandated days, right? And so when you're in a hybrid culture, team communication and company communication needs to be remote first. And then that way you don't leave anybody out. The risk is, is if you've got your people of color and then you've got your caregivers who are not in-office, and you're now focusing all of your company communication to in-office, then we'll have even less inclusion, right? Like we're already not doing this well. It's gonna exacerbate the issue and leave people out in just a very significant way. So remote first, if you're gonna do hybrid, and then you can pepper in with the in-office.
0: That's a great rule of thumb. So for everyone listening, if you are going to have in-office communication, And it's not all in office, then stick to remote because you're making sure that nobody is getting left out at any one time. Let's look at the other side of the table for a second. So we've talked about building bonds with the team remotely. Now let's look at those physical offices because there are some teams who are moving back to in-person. How can leaders get to know their team better if they are leading a team in a physical office? What are some of the practices they can do to make sure that the time they're spending with their team is leading to a strong culture and alignment?
1: I was reading an article that was just fascinating about why some people are nervous about getting back into the office. And it's because they feel like they have to re-get to know the people they already had established relationships with. Are Betsy and I still going to be doing lunch at 12 like we used to? A lot of us, 19 months away from the office for some of us, are coming back. We've had children. We've lost children. We've been married. We've had marriages go away. We had a mullet. Now we don't. We've had a beard. Now we don't. And so you almost have to relearn people. A lot of us had significant shifts that happened during COVID. So once you get back into the workplace, I wouldn't assume as a leader that you know where everybody is in their life based on, a few Zooms, and then how that relationship was back when you were in office, I would rethink and almost do a trust exercise of rebuilding that relationship. Okay, we're back in the office. What does that feel like for you? What are some signs that I could read in your behavior that tell me this isn't going well for you so I can be sure we have proactive conversations? What are signs of burnout for you? Burnout was a big issue when we were working from home because there's no off time, right? You just kind of keep plugging away. And so asking them, what are signals of burnout so that I can help you through them? Because we understand this is a shift and we want to be sure that we're all very healthy. So don't assume that you know what the person's been through or that they're the same person they were. Do some intentional team building exercises. Assign a mentor to anybody that was hired during COVID who can make some introductions, show them where the you know, the refrigerator sticks or we're the microwave that doesn't work. Think about it from a sense of rebuilding.
0: How would you structure this uh, mental relationship if someone is new to the office and they don't kind of know the nuts and bolts? How would you kind of introduce that to your team if you were to bring on board a a mentor and you could approach this in terms of setting expectations with the mentor-mentee, you could talk about the frequency of the interaction, the kind of recurring questions that they might ask, anything that comes up for you there?
1: You have to be very intentional about picking a mentor that has a little more of the This is going to sound bad. You don't need a bleeding heart, but you need somebody who's much more of got that caretaker personality. So there needs to be a feel of they're available when you need them because questions don't have a time. You're getting up and trying to figure out where the closest place to go get a sandwich is. It has to be somebody who's just got that love of helping people to take that interruption and do the right thing with it. But even just setting a weekly or an every other week check-in or just weekly in the first three weeks every other week from then on out, and let the two of them build that relationship. We don't have to instruct what happens. We just have to be sure that we've provided a a strong connection where they could feed off each other. A lot of people are advising, let's say you had somebody who had a baby or adopted during COVID. Well, match them up with somebody who's an established caregiver, who's been doing it for a while, so that they can learn the ropes and kind of get some really strong advice of, hey, I get it. You feel like crap that you had to... Miss something, or that you had to do an early drop off, or that you might pick up late today. I hear you. I understand it. We've all been there. And so, helping them have somebody who's been down this path, but don't be intentional. It's organic, right? Like relationships are organic. I mean, be intentional, but don't be prescriptive.
0: Be intentional, but don't be prescriptive. Interesting. So, this gets into like the other side of the organization, which you're trying to avoid, which is these practices of toxic culture. And it seems like one of them is like putting all of your team into a box and having them follow the same kind of set of prescriptive instructions, not accounting for for who they really are as people. One of the things you said a couple of minutes ago is that these kind of unhealthy practices from leaders may end up tipping the team towards burnout and not just the leader towards burnout. So what are some of the signals that a leader might be tipping their team towards burnout?
1: I think it's all of a sudden efficiency, productivity is lost. Typically what happens when somebody is heading towards burnout is they put themselves in what's called a parking lot. So Ben has been performing, he's been doing a great job, and then all of a sudden that slows down. And he's not quite as involved in things. And then he puts himself in a parking lot. And basically what he's doing is he's waiting to see what's going to happen in the company culture. Is he on board? Is he not on board? He just basically can't handle any more outside input. And so he puts himself in just a kind of a quiet place. So you've lost the buy-in from that person. So look for people that were involved and have pulled out. Look for people whose productivity has dropped or it's less thoughtful. Maybe Ben was that guy that executed, but he was always like, you know what? I think there's a way I can do this better. So if people are just executing to execute, you've really taken the innovation out of that team and they're just trying to do exactly what you told them to do. You said, make 50 phone calls. I'm going to make 15 phone calls to hit my sales goal. They may not be good. They may just literally be picking up the phone and asking for a person. And so when you start seeing that people are responding just to the task versus the the quality, that's really your leading indicator.
0: This seems really linked to what you shared earlier on measuring performance based on the time spent on the seat. If you're measuring based on doing the task and not on the output of the task or the outcome, then there's a fundamental mismatch in the expectations you're setting as a leader and the message that's kind of cascading down to the rest of the team. So I think it's a good lesson in being very aware of what you are signaling to your team that a good job looks like or what a good job looks like at the end of the day. Because if you're measuring based on number of calls sent and those calls aren't leading anywhere, then you're not actually getting closer to the results where the result is close five deals, for example. So it's important, I think, to kind of dovetail that mismatch.
1: It is. And it comes top down. It's if the C level is not encouraging of setting the goals and driving like a deadline cadence for goals for each team member, like a goals and objective exercise or key performance indicators exercise, then ultimately it's on them. It's going to have to come from the C suite. A great example of what you said is the call center culture. So let's say a company has an NPS goal. We want our customers to have like a 70 NPS score. We wanna have a 70 MPS score. If you're measuring your customer service reps by the shortest amount of time they can be on a call, are they really helping anybody? If I've got a big problem, but the guy's been told, hey, you can only spend 30 seconds with somebody. So think through some of the measurements that you've put in place and say, is that behavior really gonna end up to the end result that we want? Same with the sales calls. If you just say, I want 50 calls, somebody's going to give you 50 calls. But what you really want is the sales, right? Or you want to see progress through the pipeline. Maybe it's too long to wait for sales to close because you've got a really long sales cycle, but watching the progress through the pipeline.
0: It's a great point that if you're, this sales analogy, that if you're measuring or you're incentivizing your reps to have the shortest call possible, but a customer has a really hairy problem that they need someone to hold their hand through, then your reps are, being told that performance needs one thing, but customer support actually needs another thing. So I think a, a key message of this is aligning the interests of your your customers and your team. And it's an interesting segue to Bulo as well, because you're a two-sided marketplace in that you're working with mothers and caregivers who are looking to get into the workplace and placing females through your career mobility platform, but you're also working with companies to hire females into their organizations. So how do you think about making sure that the service that you're offering is consistent on both sides of the marketplaces, like you're setting the right expectations and that both parties are getting a, a really valuable experience, no matter which side of the marketplace they enter your system.
1: It was probably the biggest part of all of our research when we started Bulo. And so we do, we help women return to the workforce, but we also help women stay in by finding them jobs that offer flexibility. So we also have to work with the ones that are you know, full-time careerists, but they're just going everywhere on two wheels. So when we speak with the candidates, we help the people who haven't been in the workforce. We help them explain who they are. What's your elevator pitch? Don't ever say, I've just been taking care of my parents. I've just been a caretaker. Take the experiences that you've had during this time. When have you shown innovation? you can do that in your day-to-day life. It doesn't take a career. So we do a lot of coaching and we've built our platform to really help our caregivers highlight who they are. And then on the business side, when they put together a job description and send it our way, we have a job description call with them to help scrub out some of the language that we know will eliminate caregivers, is biased in a sense where women will not apply. So we all know there's languages and job descriptions that have unintentional bias as well. One of the biggest ones recently, we had a customer who said, they were trying to define their culture and they said, we work hard, play hard. Well, what a lot of people see out of that is it's a total bro culture. We're gonna go be doing Atari in the background and you know all of this gaming, drinking, like this just fun versus, we're gonna work hard and celebrate success. That's a very different way of saying work hard, play hard. And so we work with companies to help when they say, no, this role can't be remote. We just ask some questions to help them understand, really, some roles can't, and we get that. But can you offer some flexibility when you're there, or does it really have to be remote? Do you really need somebody who's got eight years in QuickBooks when we know that there's plenty of opportunity to train up on QuickBooks And if you give them that lead time before they start, they can get their training going. There's enough softwares that work very similarly now. That's part of the great user interfaces that design that happen. And so it's helping the companies understand in order to get diverse candidates in your door and to hire diverse candidates, you need to think through what you're saying in these job descriptions and the culture that you put out there. So
0: much of what's I'm hearing from what you're saying is that it comes back to language and how we are framing these opportunities. Like the essence of the work is, it seems less important than the language that we're using to describe it. And I think that's a, it's a great lesson that So much of this comes down to perception, like you might have a great culture, but if you're saying we're a work hard, play hard culture, then a mother or a caregiver might hear something totally different to a young male graduate in in what that culture is. So it's a really good call, I think, for companies to be very specific and intentional with the language that they're using and how they market themselves and how they promote the opportunities that they uh, have available.
1: There is a massive issue in the U.S. right now. We've got a lot of jobs, more jobs than we've ever had, but we've still got a lot of unemployment. If you're going to be really simplistic and a little bit ignorant of facts, then you're going to say it's because we've got some supplemental financial packages out there. What's really going on is during COVID, there was a lot of people who would have made a job transition, but were insecure about it. So they didn't quit during that time, but they would have. Now they're quitting. And what they were looking for is that perfect match. They've got the breathing room. They've got the desire. They've potentially moved away from big cities and they want to reskill themselves. So we're in a situation where we've got a lot of people looking for jobs and a lot of jobs, but they're not connecting. So our numbers are not improving as a country. But it's because we are trying to go back to the old ways that was very put out a very basic job description, get in 200 resumes, sift through them and then be done. And I think in order to fix this matching problem that's going on right now, we're gonna to have to have better communication, be super aware of what we're looking for and what a successful person looks like at our company.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing some data that employment for restaurant workers, whether that's waiters or waitresses or servers, is at an all time low. And I was wondering why that is. And it sounds like a a big part of that is that in the last 18 months or so, people have seen there's this other way of approaching work. And so it sounds like we've kind of collectively raised our expectations as a culture, at least in, in the US, to say, actually, I want to find some work that really empowers me, or I want to find some work that's more meaningful, rather than this kind of standard way of working that we've accepted in the past.
1: I mean, some people are in those roles because they really love serving. They love the service industry. And then there's a lot of people in those roles because that was their entry level into getting a job and they've stayed through it. But it not wasn't necessarily their passion. There's a lot of office workers who are doing stuff that's not their passion. Same thing. One of the problems with the service industry today is as people moved out of the cities during COVID, now there's these restaurants in the suburbs that need workers, but nobody who lives there can afford, nobody who lives out there is really actually the ones that are you know, the workers. So it's almost like this workforce has shifted in the city. You've still got closed restaurants because nobody's back in the office and a ton of workers. And so it's just this this odd path. But a lot of people woke up and said, wow, that was super vulnerable feeling. One thing happened and I was out of work for a year. Two, I didn't really love it anyway. And there's a ton of really good reskilling programs that I can take virtually. So I'm going to start exploring those.
0: Upskilling and reskilling, I think is a pretty interesting trend that we are going to be seeing play out over the next couple of years. Does that factor into the work that you're doing with Bulo? And and if so, what are the ways in which you you empower your female customers to say, this was the skill set that I used to have, but these are the opportunities that we now have going into this new normal what are some of the ways in which you you empower them to make the most of this new future workforce
1: well i was just on a panel yesterday where we were talking about it it was for a reskilling program that took people that were on the lower socioeconomic spectrum and reskilled them on scholarship in tech and so we were talking about how does a company how do they translate who they are to show i took this training And I can do this even though I don't have the actual experience. And so we do that a lot with our women, right? I used to be in marketing. I was out of it for 10 years. Now, how do I show that I can get back in? And so the key there is instead of starting with your hard skills, which is I've done 10 years building websites, blah, 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 WordPress, is you start with your soft skills. So when I was in the service industry, whatever I was doing, I showed leadership by taking control of something, I showed innovation by implementing a new wait system or remote paging for when your time's there. So there's about five soft skills where you can take examples from your past life and show how with your new skill and these soft skills, you will be the most incredible employee. So it's leadership, teamwork, execution, innovation, and productivity.
0: And I think that gets into what people are hiring for today, which is that the workforce is evolving so quickly that what's really important is your rate of learning and the mindset that you're using to come to the job because a marketer 10 years ago has a very different job to do than a marketer today. And so actually what you're hiring for are the, the people with the right mindset who can then kind of progress through the organization.
1: On some levels, you want a generalist, Right. You want somebody who can come into your company and bring a few different experiences to their role. I think it was a lot easier when you're hiring a lot of people, it's a lot easier to just say, I want XYZ, because then it's easier to purge all those extra resumes, but you're not necessarily getting the best person for your company, maybe for that specific role. But you know, there's give and take on both sides, but really I think this reskilling Especially with the growth in tech innovation and fintech during COVID, there's a significant change in how we just operate. We're a lot more digital. We're going to have to accept reskilled workers onto our teams. And I think you should. I think you should embrace them. The fact that somebody took the initiative to reskill is exactly the type of person you want at your company.
0: It's a great indicator for people listening of someone who has initiative and someone who's kind of going above and beyond one of the other uh, concepts that you shared last time we connected was this idea of the aberrant genius. And this is someone who is kind of exceptionally talented, a talented team member. And I thought this would be an interesting conundrum, which is if you have this talented team member at a small startup, but they don't quite fit your culture, how do you deal with someone like
1: that as the leader? In a small startup, it can be a killer it's like a golden handcuff. You need this person because they've got this incredible thought and skill, but they are killing your culture and they're making it miserable for the rest of the people. For a startup, you can't offer a big pay package. There's no like extra healthcare benefits that you can give. And so you live and die by the culture you offer your employees. If you've got one aberrant genius who's just sour, puts everything down, makes people not feel well, doesn't do teamwork, If you've got that person, you feel who they are a lot more strongly. But let's take a big company, a massive company. You still work in little microsystems, right? You've still got a team. And if you've got an aberrant genius on that team who's just allowed to wreak havoc because they're so intelligent and they have so much experience, it really demotivates the other. So maybe you're getting a ton of stuff out of this one guy, but you've now downplayed the value of the others and what they can contribute. So what it's almost like a net loss, right? Did you really get what you wanted?
0: Is that a question where you would have to have a difficult conversation with them and say, look, you've got great output, but actually we're going to have to let you go? Or would you try and restructure the team so that they can operate in a kind of independent silo? Like what would be your next step if you realize that their productivity as a single person is less than the damage that they're doing to the rest of the team.
1: Every time you should give somebody a chance, even if you think, boy, that that cat's not changing his stripes, you should always give them the opportunity. Like, this is the behavior that's having this result. Are you willing to make changes? It could be they're not a people person and they just do want to work in an isolated setting. And maybe that's okay. I mean, if that's okay for your culture, then why not? Let them work in that way. If it's still destructive, then no, that's not going to work. This new workplace is a lot more of trying to do a blend of meeting people where they are and what's best for the company. Having a conversation of why are they aberrant? Like, Why is that behavior so destructive? And then giving the adjusting the situation to be able to manage it or asking them to change their behavior. And then you've gotta make that critical decision. There's somebody else out there that will train up or that has experience that can become what that person has, that will bring value to your team. It's scary to do, but it's the right thing for the company to say, this isn't working out for either of us. You're not happy, clearly you're unhappy. So let's go our separate ways.
0: And how do you deal with these critical decisions personally as CEO, whether that is a personnel-related decision or a company strategy decision where you're deciding the direction of the company for the quarter, for the year? When you have these really high-leverage decisions to make, what are some of the questions you might ask yourself or frameworks or mental models that you use to make sure that your decision-making is as sharp and accurate as possible?
1: So it's with information. When you get to a certain level and you've delegated things, you don't have all the information. You're as vulnerable to perception issues as anybody else. And so it's making sure that you've got a clear image of what's going on. So asking the right questions. Managing a problem by creating a team is what's been most successful for me. So let's say I've got a... I'm not getting enough leads in my funnel, for example, then let me create the team of people who can go solve that problem. I don't have to be the problem solver. I need to be able to find the people to empower and have worked together to get there. And maybe I'm a part of that team for sure. And they come back and they tell me what they're doing along the way to measure progress, but it's managing the problem, not the team. Every once in a while, you know, it's a person problem, and nobody should ever be called into a meeting and have no idea that the firing was about to happen. Everybody deserves to have the opportunity to be told to adjust a behavior, or for, layoffs are different, right? But if it's a behavior issue, it's a hard conversation to have, but everybody is a person and should be given the chance to adjust their behavior. And then it's on, the responsibilities on them. And then if they don't do it, then it's it's an easy decision. So for me, maybe it's just how I deal with the guilt of it is I have the conversation, a very frank, caring conversation with what needs to change. And then they know that if it hasn't changed that next time, it's very clear what the next step is.
0: So it comes down to setting healthy expectations with the team and and giving them the freedom to change. It seems very linked to how you're dealing with these problems as well of kind of assembling the, the SWAT team, the, the really core cool team who are closest to the problem, and then giving them the freedom to go and say, figure this one out, guys. Like, Go and get me the information and not being the person who like, drives it forward, but uh, give the team some freedom and autonomy to go their own way.
1: Give them that autonomy, but put milestones in the way and they can come up with the milestones, right? So if my problem is the funnel, say, okay, you need one week to figure this out. So come back to me in a week. Next milestone is the first solution that you suggest we'll have put in place. Okay, come back to me. So establishing milestones so that you can manage that progress. You've got to help work through those milestones and almost project manage that at a higher level, holding people accountable, staying in touch, with what the solution is, but they'll let them solve it.
0: Yeah, that's a great point that as the CEO, you're there to not get into the weeds of the execution, but still be the person driving the implementation forward with accountability. This also raises an interesting thread as kind of how you're you're working through problems at Bulo and, and working as the CEO. And something that I think is important for our audience to understand is that you are also a caregiver and have been a caregiver while you've been CEO of Bulo. What's that been like for you, raising children and also running a company at the same time?
1: Uh, controlled chaos. But honestly, I don't know that that was any different than before, right? As, as just a worker, you, you put yourself in there and you're committed and you've got to execute. Now, COVID did throw a kink when they made the mistake of asking me to trying to help homeschool my kids because that's definitely not my strength. So there's a little bit of chaos that COVID brought, but it really hasn't changed much. It's still trying. People hate to say the word balance, but it just is. It's a hour by hour balance of completing what you need to do for the business, completing what you need to do for your family and then just staying on track. And at the end of the day, I may have weighed more on one side, but then tomorrow maybe I'll weigh more on the other. And it's just looking at things from a micro level versus this massive, I haven't read my book to my kid tonight to put them to sleep, so they will be illiterate from here on out, right? I think a lot of times we put this massive pressure on one event. The fact is we spend more with our kids today than any prior generation ever has. And so some of that has actually kept our kids from developing at the rate that they used to, because they're not doing self, a lot of self-exploring, you know, that was playing in the streets, playing in the yards, that kind of thing. And some of it is just being able to let go and say, I don't have, they are little humans. They are meant to evolve and grow. I don't have as much control as I think I do over how well and how badly they're doing. And it's also been fabulous. My kids are 13 and 10. And so they've been able to like be sitting in the room when I've pitched to a group of investors and had really difficult conversations felt really vulnerable myself so they've been a part of watching a business grow that i don't they wouldn't have had that opportunity before and it's just created a great buy-in to what i'm doing so when i say sweetie i can't make that grilled cheese for you right now i've got this really important call she knows what i mean by that it's not just this nebulous thing where i'm talking to another person she's seen it live
0: that's a great point and is setting up a healthy relationship as well for the future where they're not just wondering, what does mom do during the nine to five? Like, where does she go? I mean, I I had really very limited ideas of what my dad did all through being a teenager through no fault of his own. It just like, wasn't something we discussed, but when they come of age to actually go into the workforce themselves, they have this very high resolution reference point of what work actually looks like because they've been close to it for that entire time. So you're almost like you're leading the family forward at the same time as leading the company forward.
1: Uh, So many of our clients, when they see our message, reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, hey, I wanna have a conversation with you guys. I had a working mom. I admire her every day. I look back on what she did and it was the best life. And then I also have people who say, I had a stay at home mom. And I remember her talking about, she wished she had something that she could do You know, as I was growing up, and so it's we all reference the generation that was right that raised us, and so yeah, they'll have a different way of looking at the world because they knew I was like you. I kind of knew what my dad was doing, but I didn't realize the significance of it. So it, it helps give context to each of those decisions.
0: Yeah, context is a great way of phrasing it, and it also just allows for a kind of for a more real, authentic relationship. Well, you're appreciating the human side as well, and this also reminds me of one of your core values, which is on maintaining that focus of uh, balance and making sure that work and life are are kind of equally balanced. And one way that you deliver this is by giving your employees unlimited paid time off. How do you make unlimited paid time off work in a healthy culture? Because for some people, I can imagine there's a bit of resistance to this idea of just saying free holidays forever. So How do you make that work?
1: Oh, yeah. I had um, a consultant who came to me and was like, this is the the dumbest idea ever. And I was like, I promise I've seen this work well. Let's just try this. And so the way you make it work well is, again, holding people to goals. There's some language that goes in there, right? Like you can take a week off, but if we're going to talk about three weeks off, we need to have company approval. We need to have some things in place that say this is acceptable. But ultimately, if you're going to start using that unlimited PTO nonstop, then you're probably not the right person for the team. You probably just don't have that commitment and you're not meeting your goals. The studies on unlimited PTO show that the opposite is the problem, is that people take less because they're concerned that it will look like they're taking too much versus when you give them set days. So if you put that policy, you should also put a set number of days of you have to take this off, this time off to avoid burnout. You want them to take some time off all the studies show they return stronger, more bought in, new ideas. You will have people that push the envelope and they're just ultimately not the right people. We've had to make that choice of somebody who just obviously kind of heard that unlimited PTO from a different lens than the rest of the team. <laughs> and so you have to be ready to have that hard conversation. And there's plenty of documentation that you can have from an hr perspective to make sure you don't end up in trouble one of the things i wanted to quickly bring back around to and it has to do with that healthy balance is i work best early morning i am a wake up at five start sending emails i tell my team you are responsible for your own life balance don't wake up at five and answer my emails answer them when you get to them just because that's the right time for me to be working doesn't mean it's the right time to you. You work best at nine o'clock at night. I don't. I'm not going to answer your emails. And so it's saying work best when you can. And if I have an email that needs to be urgently responded to, I put urgent in the title.
0: That's a great call because otherwise, especially in a remote culture, your team has no signal of whether they're expected to reply to the messages that you're sending, or if they're thinking, well, Delphine seems to be online at all hours. How am I supposed to keep up with this? Or I need to wake up earlier. So just telling the team proactively that reply in your own time. So yeah, it's a good signal of of a good culture, I think.
1: Yeah, you put the responsibility on the person to manage their time.
0: So last question for you, Delphine. This has been a lot of fun today. And uh, it's a simple one, but it's something that we like ending with what does culture mean to you
1: a good culture to me means healthy people feel healthy they look healthy it's a health which is you know i guess why you do employee satisfaction surveys is do you feel healthy is this the best place for you to succeed
0: okay so it all really comes down to the well-being of the person then for you
1: it does i think ultimately that's what culture should bring is the well-being of the people
0: That's a great note to end on. Well, if our listeners want to keep up with you and follow you on your journey, where are the best places they can follow you online?
1: Absolutely. So we love to engage with people on LinkedIn. So follow Bulo, B-O-U-L-O, Bulo Solutions on LinkedIn. Also come to our website, bulosolutions.com. That's where you can post a job opportunity if you've got a full-time, temporary, or project role that you'd like for us to help you with. And also, if you're interested in becoming a Bulo member, that's free, obviously. So just come online and start building a profile. We're also on Instagram for all of you that like sitting in bed swiping late at night. And you'll see some great nuggets of information there.
0: Fantastic. Delphine, thanks so much. This is a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. Hey, it's
0: Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, We are astutely. Dot .com thanks for listening and i'll see you next time for another episode of subject matter